Apologies. Oh, my gosh. You're listening to AGs, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota take on the very last episode of the second season of a show named after a city in North Dakota. Every week we've been going over what happened and who's dead now. Today we are going to have one final interview and talk about just what happened on the finale last night. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for NPR, and I love cable TV. I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and Your Classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture blog called The Tangential. This week, indeed, we have a very special guest, Adam Arkin, the director of the final two episodes of season two of Fargo, as well as the actor who plays Kansas City corporate boss Hamish Broker. But uh, first, let's talk about what happened last night in the season finale. It was kind of strange because it opened again with a with a narrator's voice, but this time it was Lou Salverson. Yeah, the narrator from the Encyclopedia of True Crime is gone. Yeah, bye-bye, Martin Freeman and your British accent. We enjoyed you for the one episode that we knew you in this season. So now we have Lou Salverson uh, reciting the text that we've previously seen sort of typed over the opening sequence of each episode this season. Which is interesting to make him the narrator for the last episode. It's almost like Lou is getting to tell his story. Sounding maximally world-weary. And we open with a a montage of deceased Gerhardts. We've got Rye in the freezer. We've got Otto at the table. We hadn't seen his death scene before. We got Dodd, Bear, Floyd. And let's not forget Simone. We finally have official confirmation. Simone met her demise in the woods. Shot in the heart. Somehow Rye getting hit by a car ended up taking out his entire family. Except Charlie. We didn't see any of Charlie in last night's episode. That's right. He's in prison. Yeah, we know we know where Charlie is, but uh, yeah, no no updates from him. His status uh, remains. And then we see Betsy at the end of this montage, and we're really being set up to think, oh no, this is it for her, but it's not. At least not yet. She is alive in bed with her beloved daughter, Molly, under the careful watch of... Morbid Noreen. Noreen. Back for the win. And guess what her bedside reading is? She's still working on the myth of Sisyphus. Still reading Camus. Not uh, not dissuaded by her recent traumatic experiences from still <laughs> trying to get to the bottom of that fundamental existentialist text. And Betsy is having a dream. Another kind of shout out to a Coen Brothers movie. Similar to a sequence at the uh, near the end of Raising Arizona, where Nicolas Cage's character is sort of imagining what might happen in the future and having the sort of dream of the future. And Betsy's dialogue is similar to some of the things that Nicolas Cage says in that sequence. In Betsy's dream, she's dreaming about the good. She's having visions of the future, which I find hysterical. She's imagining a future with uh, fantastical gadgets like Game Boys and amazing stores like Costco. Okay, Betsy Salverson predicts the rise of Costco in this dream. How could this possibly happen? Little electronic football games you can hold in your hand? (laughs) Yeah, a place where you can buy dog food and underwear and gourmet sandwiches. And she dreams that Molly will grow up to be a wonderful woman under the loving care of her father who survives. And it's this is wonderful. We get to see a lot of the cast members, or at least a few key cast members from season one, return. That's right. Keith Carradine, Allison Tolman, and Colin Hanks come back for this delightful little cameo. Betsy is dreaming of Molly's future, gathered around uh, the table for the birthday party of her son with Gus Grimley, Colin Hanks from season one. 
and you spotted a UFO calendar on the wall. That's right. The aliens continue into the future. But anyway, so Betsy sees this beautiful future of electronics and Costco and birthday parties. But she also sees this dark future, which is represented by Hamdi, like peering through these flames with his scarred face. If you remember at the end of episode nine, uh, Peggy, and as they're making a break from the motel, splashes him with boiling water. And so half of his face is now severely burned. So we get these two futures juxtaposed, and it ends kind of with Betsy's worrying that maybe the happiness that she saw won't come to pass um, if the other side that she saw, Hansi, uh, wins, I guess. It was kind of a weird to set those up against each other. but And as we discover later in the episode, it may be that Hansi is not just threatening her family's immediate future, but could be sticking around to threaten her family decades into the future as well. But more on that later. At the Motor Lounge, uh, we see Lou leaving Hank in good hands. They're promising they're going to have Sunday dinner again. And he heads off after Hansi, Peggy, and Ed. Peggy and Ed, surprisingly, still alive at this point. Uh, they try and get help from a nice old man in a station wagon who, of course, gets his brains blown out by Hansi Dent. Never try to help the Blumquist. That is the moral of the season of Fargo. You'll get killed. The other takeaway that the Blumquists will somehow manage to survive everything does not turn out to hold true through this episode because Ed gets shot pretty much straight through the shoulder, it looks like, by Hansi. They flee to a supermarket. We spent a lot of time in supermarkets in season one. Nothing good in ha- that happened in them. So when they headed into a supermarket in season two, I was like, this... This is not good. Nope. And of course, the only place to hide conveniently is a walk-in freezer. Oh, man. Also, not a good omen. Never go in the freezer. Uh, Ed has been trailing blood this whole time. And he's back in his comfort zone here amongst dead pigs and frozen sides of meat. In Peggy's mind, this is just like the movie, that romantic movie she was watching in the last episode. They're going to make it out alive. Ed has slightly different plans for their future if they have one. Yeah, Ed is takes this sort of moment while he's lying there in the freezer, as you point out, sort of in his comfort zone, to have a really honest talk with Peggy, perhaps sensing that this may be the last talk he and Peggy ever have. And he says, you know, I don't think this is necessarily going to turn out. And Peggy realizes, because Ed very explicitly tells her, no, no, I don't just mean... I don't think we're going to live through this. I mean, our relationship won't survive, even if we do. What do you see? We're just too different. Don't say that. This, what we've been through, adversity, that's what what seals the bond, makes us stronger. Like like, like how a bone heals. Peg. No, no, I I know I had my doubts. I know, but I'm I'm sure now. I'm sure. Will you just let me talk? Ed picks this moment to break up with Peggy. So he takes his stand in the end, and it does turn out to be the end for Ed. Indeed. So Ed very quietly dies in the freezer. While Peggy is straight up hallucinating at this point, she's like seeing smoke coming in through the vent. And we're getting these strange shots of Hansi Dent stalking down the aisles, rooting around the back of the store. And if you notice, they're all shot with this very uh, hazy lens. They're kind of blurry around the edges. The lights are flickering. Uh, The cinematography that's happening here is very strange. At first, I thought this meant the aliens were coming back. (laughs) Flickering lights do tend to be associated with aliens. But I think it, it was all in Peggy's head. That's why these scenes were so odd. She was imagining... 
Hansi Dent coming for them and smoking them out of the freezer. But we don't realize that until she is being smoked out. She's like, she thinks she's choking. She's dying in this freezer. She's going to suffocate. So they had previously secured the freezer. They blocked it from the inside, but she decides she's going to have to bust out. So she gets ready with the ice pick, you know, busts out of the freezer, ready to stab Hansi. And no, it's Lou and good old Ben Schmidt there to save her. So there's no Hansi in sight. Also no smoke in sight. No smoke in sight. No evidence Hansi was ever in the grocery store. And it takes Lou a long time to convince her of this. And then as we realize, like, it was just her hallucinations. This is kind of strange. They check on Ed. Ed is dead. Lou says, I'm taking Peggy Blomquist back to Minnesota, puts her in the back of the patrol car. And Schmidt is like, what am I even supposed to do? I mean, his boss died in the shootout at the motel. He never wanted to be involved in any of this anyway. And now he's kind of left with the aftermath. I think it's kind of fun because... Ben Schmidt, we actually saw him in season one. He is the chief of police in Duluth. He is Gus Grimley's boss. So Ben is going to remain in the police business. We'll just, uh, you know, transfer over to the slightly more peaceful locale of Duluth, Minnesota. But we'll get no more competent as a cop. In fact, in some ways, might actually get worse. In season one, Gus Grimley kind of has this heart-to-heart with Lou Salverson. He's kind of complaining about his job, sort of, and... He says who his boss is. It's Schmidt. And Lou gives this knowing this knowing phrase like, oh, I know him. <laughs> it's like, yep, he's the shit cop all grown up. Terrible, terrible cop. Anyway, back to season two. Peggy and Lou are heading back to Minnesota, having a heart to heart about feminism, about philosophy. Peggy is making her case as a victim and Lou is shutting her down with these war stories. It's definitely the, a huge clash of of ideas happening in this police car as they're heading back across the state lines to Minnesota. So cut up to Fargo, where Mike Milligan and the remaining Kitchen brother arrive, and Milligan is just feeling happy as a clam. He believes he has conquered this territory, and this house is now his. Makes himself at home, walks into the kitchen, where he discovers the one remaining free member of the whole Gerhardt entourage except Hansi. Yeah, so Wilma, the housekeeper who we've seen only in the background this whole season, is there just cooking. I don't know who she's cooking for, but... She's doing her job. She's anticipating maybe a Gerhardt homecoming that's never going to happen. And she plays it super cool when these unknown gangsters stroll into the kitchen. Clearly, she has seen some stuff in her time for the Gerhards. And... Milligan lets her know there's going to be a little change in menu around the house now. Like, no more schnitzel, no more strudel. We're going to have some American food. Darn right. <laughs> so while uh, Milligan is sampling the distasteful German food, he and the kitchen brother notice a car pulling in. And who's in the car? Our old friend Ricky from Buffalo, New York, who is similarly feeling like the house is now his. He thinks he has the house to himself and starts cleaning out the silver, as you do. But Milligan got there first, and Milligan gives Buffalo Ricky a little lesson in sovereignty. Milligan thinks that a newly appointed king should demonstrate one act of kindness and one act of cruelty to show his constituents, if you will. Uh, Buffalo Ricky would like the first one, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buffalo Ricky is, uh, is, tries to sign up for the first one, but too late. The first one has already gone to Wilma, so Buffalo Ricky gets it in the chest with a shotgun. And they let us see every agonizing breath that he takes as, like, blood is spurting out of his chest and they leave him to die like that. It was 
was gruesome for Ricky. I say this for Ricky. At least he went out looking good. That <laughs> yeah. turtleneck chain combo, that was working for him up to the last. I'll, I'll say that. When he walked in without his aviators, I was like, oh, his powers are gone. <laughs> oh, good point. But what happened to Hansi? Hansi is oddly sitting at a baseball field watching two kids play catch. Tellingly, we learn immediately that one of them is deaf. But meanwhile, Hansi is conducting this transaction. He is arranged to have a new identity, and his new last name is Tripoli. That's right. Moses Tripoli is the name on the social security card that this presumably, you know, you know a guy brings him a new identity. And that is the name of the Fargo mob boss in season one. But that guy had a very, very different face. Different face, different personality, different voice. So we're kind of left wondering. All right, so back to the kids. We see the kids scuffling with these older bullies. Hansi is sort of starting to lose it. You see he's he's feeling for these little kids who are being beat up by these older bullies. And before he storms off with his new identity, he has this brief sort of heated little talk with uh, with his new contact about how he wants to get a new face. I need a face, man. His details are inside. I'm assuming you want more than just a skin peel. Something structural. All new man. Like the phoenix rising from the ashes. Hansi stalks off with a knife towards the bullies, terrifying them, and then the camera pans away up to the sky. So we're left to assume Hansi did something terrible to the older bullies, thus earning the loyalty of the younger kids, who go on to become... Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers, the Fargo mob heavies that we met in season one. Does Hansi really become the Mr. Tripoli we knew in season one? I think he does. So the guy who brings the new identity, he asks, like, what are you going to do next? Are you going to go after Kansas City? Are you going to just, like, hurt him or whatever? And Hansi says, not apprehend, dead. Don't care. Don't care into the sea. Kill and be killed. Head in a bag. There's the message. In season one, in the Chinese restaurant, the Fargo mob boss, Tripoli, is asked about Malvo, and he says, not apprehend, dead. Don't care, don't care, not related, kill and be killed, head in a bag, there's the message. Boom, there goes the dynamite. Noah Hawley has reached all the way back to season one and pulled this little line of dialogue in there and dropped it right in season two. So all my... uh, My doubts about face transplants aside, I think we are supposed to believe that Hansi becomes Tripoli. And will establish this new empire. But speaking of new empires, Milligan, feeling on top of the world, heads back to Kansas City to receive his corporate approbation, which he does indeed receive. He gets a promotion, although what exactly that promotion entails was not exactly what he imagined. It turns out that the people running the things up in Fargo on the street, like, those are just the drones. If you want to make big money, if you want to be in charge in this operation, you sit in an office with a typewriter and a phone and a little stack of pens. And a 401k, mostly 9 to 5, but, you know, management rewards initiatives, so evenings, weekends, whatever it takes. (laughs) I love that the Kansas City mob has an HR department. Yeah, And this whole uh, Western thing, that's got to go. Get something gray or pinstripe with a white shirt and a, a, a real tie. And, and, and cut your hair, okay? The 70s are over, for Christ's sake. So this is 
The corporate greed of the 80s sweeping in. There's only one business left, as the Kansas City leader tells us. It's the money business. So everything that Milligan is good at, terrorizing and giving these speeches and hunting people down, I'm not sure it's going to translate that well into office work. So Milligan is left with his uh, IBM Selectric typewriter, a la Skip Spring, who turns out to have been right. The tragedy of Skip Spring. Skip Spring was hawking this same model of typewriter in that first episode saying, it's not just for women anymore. (laughs) Like, nope, it's also for Mike Milligan in Kansas City. So that just leaves the solver sentence. What happened with the solver sentence? Well, we cut back to Lou and Betsy getting ready to sit down for Sunday dinner and guess who their guest is. Hank lived! Hooray! Hooray! Uh, I was so relieved to see Hank Larson coming in in his little sweater combo set. Uh, I don't think we've seen him in civilian clothes this entire season, so that was kind of fun. Um, He has lived. They are having the Sunday dinner that they always talked about. Um, But Betsy has one little bone to pick with her dad. Yeah, it's nice to see Hank alive, both because you like the character and also because you really wanted to find out what was going on with Hank and those crazy symbols we saw a few episodes ago. And Betsy finds a moment and sort of lets her dad know she checked out the study and... It turns out Hank has been creating a universal language a la Esperanto, but this time with symbols because pictures are harder to to misinterpret. So Hank thinks, uh, you know, he has what he understands to be a slightly chaotic idea that he might help bring about world peace by creating a language that will enable universal communication, which ties in with other themes this season in terms of uh, difficulties of communication, people speaking different languages, coming from different cultures. The end of the episode ends uh, with Lou, you know, setting the books back up on his daughter's shelf and tucking Molly in. I thought it was interesting that this show that has been phrased as a tale, as a story, as that's had a narrator, ends with a book being put on the shelf and being tucked into bed as if this has been the end of a really nightmarish and murderous bedtime story. He tucks darling little Molly in, promises to take her fishing, and then Betsy, still alive. I mean, we did a poll around the office about who we thought was going to live and we were going to... Nobody thought Betsy was going to live, but she did. And she lives long enough uh, for Lou and Betsy to settle into their bed back home in Laverne, Minnesota. Good night, Mr. Salverson. Good night, Mrs. Salverson. And all the ships at sea. The title of this episode was Palindrome. Palindrome, if you remember your terms, uh, are words or phrases that read the same backwards or forwards. Um, Madam, I'm Adam. Was one of them. Uh, Otto. Otto. That was the first thing I thought of when I saw the episode title, Otto Gerhardt being the patriarch of the Gerhardt family. So there were a lot of references in the dialogue tonight to starts and finishes and ends and beginnings. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how to write this thing up. Where to begin? Well, like anything, I guess, you know. Start at the start and work your way to the end. If you have a palindrome, the start is the end and the end is the start. So 
That's kind of, I think, what they're getting at with the episode title here. You noted there was some symmetry as well. There was a Sunday dinner at the end. The typewriters came back. Like, if you view the entire season as a palindrome, there are some call-outs in the very first episode that come back in the end as well. But it also ties into the whole existential theme of the whole season about how it's just history repeating. Everybody thinks they're going to change the world. Everybody thinks they're going to solve it. Everybody thinks they've figured it out. Everybody thinks they're going to self-actualize. But one thug just replaces another. One hero cop just replaces another. And... Yeah, empires fall into the sea and new empires replace them, as we were taught on that baseball field. What was interesting for me, we've been hitting the existentialism pretty hard all season. But Betsy Salverson in her bed talking to Noreen about Camus and what she's reading kind of destroys Camus. Camus says, no one we're going to die makes life absurd. Well, I don't know what that is. But I'm guessing he doesn't have a six-year-old girl. And when this life is over, and you stand in front of the Lord, well, you try telling him it was all some Frenchman's joke. This Minnesota housewife kind of skewers all this existentialist logic, uh, fighting it with her, with her faith and her love for her family. So yeah, so we've now had this opposing interpretation of Camus advanced by Betsy, by Ed in the butcher shop when he was trying to talk to Noreen and he was having none of it. Uh, And then by Lou, who really echoes exactly what Ed was saying to Noreen when they were talking about Camus. Your husband, he said he was going to protect his family no matter what. And I acted like I didn't understand, but I do. It's the rock we all push, men. We call it our burden, but it's really our privilege. And so seeming to agree with Ed and with with Betsy that life does have a purpose. It's the simple things, which this gets back to... Marge Gunderson in the original movie. That was sort of her philosophy as well. No, the world isn't perfect. Bad people will always be out there. That's why you get up in the morning and, you know, you do the best you can to take care of your family. However, in this season, specifically in Lou's conversation with Peggy, this takes a strikingly gendered turn because Lou is talking about sort of the the burden and the privilege of being a man. You got to take care of your family. And Peggy tells him, no, you just, you'll never understand. I wanted to choose be my own me, not be defined by someone else's expert. And then that guy, that stupid guy, walked out into the... Why do you have to do that? You mean the victim? No, that's not fair. Because I'm a victim, too. Was a victim first, before him. Victim of what? You wouldn't understand. You're a man. It's a lie, okay? That you can do it all. Be a wife and a mother and this self-made career woman. Like there's 37 hours in a day. And then when you can't, they say it's you. You're faulty. Like... Like you're inferior somehow. And like, like if you could just get your act together, 
until you're half mad. People are dead, Peggy. It's odd, though, because she's pulling this speech out, which is uh, shockingly still relevant today. <laughs> and But she's also pulling it out with her her victim talk. I'm the victim. I was the victim first. Uh, we've heard this I'm the victim refrain. We heard it in the movie. We heard it last season from Lester. We heard it at the beginning of this season from Ed. People who trot out I'm the victim are rarely just the victim. So she's mixing these this very valid speech about what's happening in that time and this time. But she's kind of wrapping herself in the idea of being a victim. Yeah. And I think that that scene is just like such a great example of why this season in particular has been so good. It's so strong on so many levels. And it ties up in this really interesting, complicated place. Because to say, hey, listen, people are dead. Well, that's not wrong. That's a very serious thing, of course. But that doesn't mean that Peggy was wrong either. Right. And you can sort of see the look on Kirsten Dunn's face sitting in the back of that car when Lou is like, hey, listen, Peggy, people are dead. And you can just, she, you know, she's thinking she's about to cry. You know, obviously her husband has just died. All this carnage has happened. But you can see she also knows, I mean, she's right that, you know, things are messed up with respect to gender roles. And she was trapped and that wasn't a good thing. And she is a victim in some ways. Right. Both Lou and Peggy are right in this car, but it was this delightful clash of perspectives. Um, you get the war stories. You also get the war stories from the home front, which are the feminism war stories at this point. Yeah, I really liked, um, we're talking with Blake Iverson about this, and I really appreciated his observation that Noah Hawley is 48 years old, he's Gen X, and this is really a Gen X take on the Vietnam era. And if you look back at the movies and songs and the cultural interpretations of the Vietnam era that were coming back, say, at that time, in the late 70s, in the 80s, they were being made by the people who are part of that Vietnam generation and really felt this sense of pain and betrayal and were really angry that the the promise of that had been made to them was broken in terms of them having you know, fighting a just war being treated fairly but now that decades have gone by it's sort of a different it's a different perspective we have on the Vietnam era and it is this more almost existential perspective where what does it mean that American can get into wars like this again and again and again you had Vietnam then we've since had of course Iraq and everything happening in the Middle East and it's this kind of bleaker less personal take on the meaning of the Vietnam era something really interesting that someone pointed out to us on Twitter is that uh, this episode's kind of dealing uh, as Lou called out he's like there's been this this crime wave after the Vietnam veterans returned and that's actually based in fact they're is this crime wave that happens when wars end and people come home and they have trouble adjusting and there's all this conflict. So uh, while this giant massacre may not be realistic that we saw this season, there is this historical basis for the idea that people come home um, and there's anger and confusion and violence and they're bringing it home with them. Yeah, and every there just like the there's a moment between. Lou and Ben in this episode where they bring back the reference to what's that military term? Fubar. Fubar, which has uh, you can you can Google that. We won't, we won't uh, spell out to you what that stands for. But uh, yeah, not not a good situation. And you see moments like that again and again throughout this season where when people are really like having tough times and they're in what would seem to be really extreme situations or frustrating situations. Sometimes they kind of look at each other and they say, yep. This happens in life. Yeah, the fact that Schmidt and Lou are crouched behind this car, taking on gunfire. Schmidt's been clocked in the head. There's blood everywhere. There's bodies everywhere. And they're having to yell out FUBAR. I mean, that sounds like 
a war scene, but it's not. It's the supermarket in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The war really is home in this season of Fargo. And this is also the end of the season. There's an explicit reference to this being the end of the 70s. We're now looking back on the 70s and getting ready for the 80s when everything will be corporatized and optimistic and better. Yeah, Joe Bulo set this up for us in one of the Kansas City's early meetings with the Gerhards when they said, uh, you know, corporations are king. The age of the family business is over. You know, greed is everything now. So the people in the three-piece suits won this one, basically. The Gerhards have been wiped off the face of the planet. Uh, and now Mike Milligan is supposed to carry out his evil deeds from an office, from a desk. I kind of liked thinking in my head, imagining that how a character like Hamish Broger could just go right on to be Michael Douglas in Wall Street. This is this is that era where the beginning of that era where uh, perhaps the most uh, savage brutalities take place uh, via high finance and uh, in three piece zoots. I just want to check in on aliens real quick. Other than the little UFO calendar, which is kind of buried as an Easter egg in this episode, we get Hank and Lou talking about it at the end after dinner. <laughs> like, so, you know, what are you going to say in your report? And he's like, uh, you know, gunfight interrupted by a spacecraft. Like, uh, no, I think we'll just we'll leave that part out. Uh, there's this idea that they don't even really understand what happened to them. So were there aliens? Were there not? Was it an, an embellishment of our British narrator in the last episode? It's supposed to be left unclear. I think some people were upset on Twitter because there wasn't more closure or tying it up. And I was like, did you want a spacecraft to land on the Salverson's lawn and like come out and have Sunday dinner with them? Like there, we got as much closure as we could possibly get on a supernatural storyline. Okay, Jay, do you have your ballot? I do. I have it in this envelope. It's been sealed. I'm going to... Jay and I made predictions about who we thought would live and who we thought would die. Uh, They're probably not a huge surprise to you who've been listening to us all season speculate and go back and forth, but we're going to see how we did. Okay, who did you guess was going to live, Tracy? I thought Ed was going to make it. I also thought Ed was going to make it. I didn't until episode nine, and then episode nine toyed with my heart, and I thought... Ed would make it, but he didn't. Nope. We both, it looks like, thought that Peggy was going to make it. Correct on that Correct. score. I thought Hank was going to die. I didn't want it to happen. But so did I. I, I thought, thought it man, might yeah. If Simone has to die in that like ambiguous situation, they're not going to let Hank live. But they did. Hank, Hank defied our expectations and survived. I also thought Hansi Dent was going to die. I did too. I thought there would be this huge shootout. And strangely, there was... A little shooting in the beginning of this episode, but there was no final big confrontation with Hansi. He slips off into, you know, the American dream to the baseball field, to reinventing himself. And I thought Hansi was going to end up taking his own life. I thought he was going to take care of the business he had to take care of and then be done. But far from it. Betsy Salverson. Defying the odds. We don't know for how long, but... Still kicking in this episode. Did you think she was going to make it through this oh, episode? Check it out. That's a oh, live box. You That's did say yes. I, I said no. I thought we were going to say goodbye to Betsy. And then uh, we put Noreen on there just for kicks, just in case there was a shootout at the Salverson house, I guess. Thank goodness there wasn't. There wasn't. She lived. So so happily. Maybe as one of the happiest endings in this story. Did you uh, feel like all the character arcs were satisfying now that all is said and done for season two? Lou... I think it's telling his character doesn't really change over the course of the episode because he doesn't need to change. Like he starts out as such 
a good moral person. At the end, he can kind of kiss his wife and slip into bed. And that's who he's been all season. He's been a constant. Yeah, along with Betsy and Hank. Both those characters have remained pretty stable. We've learned some interesting things about Hank's character. But yeah, definitely all three of those characters have really turned out to be the heroes of the season, as we knew they would be. I will also say, you know who I missed most in this episode? And I think I speak for a lot of our listeners when I say this. Where was Carl Weathers? <laughs> Carl Weathers was at the VFW. <laughs> That's true. I think I think we 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 know what happened to Carl Weathers. I guess we don't find out whether or not he ever managed to kick drinking like uh, like Betsy suggested that he did. Mike Milligan's storyline is kind of left open for future conflict. There's just there's no way he's going to make it in the corporate world. There's no way he's going to give up his bolo tie, right? I don't know. I li- I liked the way that that ended. I liked the way that he was left there with what he had hoped for, which is the promotion, but realizing that, you know, you have to be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Peggy is the big question left open for me. I mean, we have been on a wild ride with Peggy mentally, uh, physically. Obviously, she's been through, th- through some really crazy stuff. And uh, what we get from her at the end is her fantasizing about having an ocean view out of her prison window. Like, she's kind of resigned herself to that and is just just still wants to make it to California, even if it's in a federal prison. We get this very melancholy cover of California Dreamin' playing as she's sitting in that patrol car. And that pretty much sums up Peggy for me. I mean, I've been waiting for that song all season. And it came, I think, at the right time. And and it was a great cover that really summed up the sadness that is Peggy Blumquist. All the leaves are brown And the sky is gray. I went for a walk on a winter's day. I'd be saving For our last episode, we are over the moon about the chance to talk to Adam Arkin, an actor and director whose work you have seen all over the place. He's directed episodes of The Americans, Justified, Sons of Anarchy, Masters of Sex, and, of course, the last two episodes of Fargo this season. He also acted in the season. He plays Hamish Broker, one of the heads of the Kansas City mob. We saw him in this last episode giving Mike Milligan an orientation to corporate greed. Uh, Adam, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So how did you end up both directing and acting in this season? The directing assignment came first, and... um after I had been set to do those episodes for some time, Noah just uh, at one point called me and said, there's this role. He's going to appear in a couple of episodes. He, he's not going to be in a lot, but he's sort of pivotal to the plot. And, uh, would, you know, would you have any interest in, in jumping into that as well as directing? And I, I jumped at the chance. So how would you describe the style of this show versus other shows that you've worked on? What were the specific challenges of directing a couple of episodes of this season versus other TV shows? Well, I, I think there, there is always a sense uh, that, that Noah is, is really using the lexicon of, of the Coen brothers' work to inform the style, the approach, both in terms of the writing and 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 the visual style, and even even his his sense of of music and and the boldness of musical choices, I think are all very evocative of the Coens. And I think having that um, that stylistic 
umbrella over everything informs a huge amount. And then there's just there 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 is Noah's particular brand of of insight and and taste and sense of irony and intelligence. Um that is a very palpable presence in in every aspect of the production of the show. And it, it if if you're if you're paying attention to that and want to want to honor that, it, it, it starts informing all those decisions. And so obviously Noah Hawley has this very strong vision. He created the show, he's written both seasons. What was it like working with his scripts? How do you get to add your own influence as a director? I, I actually sort of like a sense of, of sort of honoring and disappearing into uh, material, especially when it's that good. So it's really just a question of, for me, using my own barometer as to whether something feels like it's honoring the material and feels truthful, both in the moment and and to those historical parts of the story. You know, whether whether you're 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 fitting into the evolution of the story in a way that feels true and and organic and there's any number of sources that you can use to sort of double check that. But, you know, at that point, the actors had all been playing these characters and we are, you know, all in the process of trying to tell a story in the most truthful way possible. So there's certainly, you know, broader conceptual choices that are made and you hope those are right. But then there's also very much a a need to be present in the moment and and ask yourself from moment to moment whether something feels true and honest to to any given scene that's being played. I had a question about how the the season was shot. Was it shot in order that we saw it? I know sometimes shows jump around and those important ending scenes actually come earlier. Uh, what yeah. was the chronology <clears throat> for Fargo? It. it by and large, it was shot in order. There, there were some some sequences that had to be done a little bit out of order, only because of um, scheduling issues and actor availability issues. You know, the two episodes that I did were were done at the end of the run. There, you know, there were eight episodes that were essentially completed by the time I came on to start directing nine and ten. Um, because most of the directors would would be assigned two episodes those episodes would tend to be cross-boarded. So when we were shooting 9 and 10, we weren't, we weren't shooting them necessarily chronologically. We were, we were shooting um, in a way that, that allowed the schedule to be most efficient. So I would, I would jump back and forth between scenes in 9 and 10 on, a, on any given day. Um, but in terms of the overall arc of the show, they were done in order, yeah. Did you have a favorite scene to direct? I loved getting to direct the shootout at the motel, even though it was, it was probably the most daunting sequence I've ever had to do. There were so many moving parts and so many planes of action, you know? So it was, that was a very, very demanding, but incredibly satisfying uh, sequence to do. It would keep me up at night uh, thinking about the logistics of it all. On the other end of the spectrum, and another scene I, I absolutely loved was uh, th- there's a scene between Lou and Schmidt 
outside the market the morning after they have found Ed and Peggy there. And they're, they're, it's basically Schmidt's last scene in the show. And there's a moment of extreme tenderness between him and Lou that I, I, I knew when we were doing it was something very special. Patrick Wilson and Keir O'Donnell, the, the two actors in the scene, just did beautiful work. And I also loved I loved working with Kristen and uh, and Patrick in that, that that scene in the car, the the long scene in the car in episode ten, where Lou talks about the experience with the helicopter in Vietnam. It couldn't have been a simpler scene to shoot in certain ways, as far as the technical aspects of it. But the writing was so deep in it that I, I and their work just. I felt privileged just to get to be watching it. Hey, when you were directing Kirsten Dunst in this last episode, and, I mean, she's on this roller coaster of emotions. I mean, she's hallucinating, then she's kind of accepting her fate. I mean, that seems like such a tricky character to pull off in this last episode. What was yes. it like working with her on that? There was something incredibly easy about working with Kirsten. Um she came incredibly well prepared and with a very specific idea of, of where her character was at any given point in the story. She put in a lot of work. And yet she also, I found, was, was very collaborative and open to ideas. It was a, just a profoundly satisfying experience working with her, working with the entire cast, really. Um, it's as good a cast as I've ever had the privilege to work with. So one of the really distinctive visual devices that this season incorporated was that use of split screen. It's so sort of quintessentially 70s, helps puts us in the era, and gives you an interesting storytelling tool. Did you have fun using split screen? I, I did. I loved watching the way it was incorporated. But to be completely honest, the idea to be using split screen was something that was developed really as the, as the season was unfolding. And initially, uh, it was presented as something that Noah was experimenting with. And I found that, that in the cutting of the show, you have ultimately such a limited time to deliver your cut, uh, your director's cut. I did not spend a lot of time focusing on the split screen aspects of it. I felt that the most uh, productive thing I could do was to, you know, put together a a great narrative in the way that the script had been written and present that to Noah in my director's cut, knowing that he would have his own instincts about where he wanted to start employing the split screen. I didn't want to spend the, you know, the four days I had to do my cut. There, there's too much other work to be done uh, at that point. It, it was something that I knew Noah would want to get into and, and so left him free reign to choose where to employ that device. Four days. That's fascinating. That seems like such a quick turnaround for such an emotionally packed, complicated show. Yeah, it's a it's 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 a jam packed four days. I mean, it's four days per episode. Right. So I had a total of eight days of editing. But it's it's um, no matter how you dice it, it's it's a lot of work to get done in a short period of time. You seem like you had fun playing Hamish. You get this great speech at the end of the season introducing Mike Milligan to how, you know, corporate mafia really works. How was it like to kind of sweep in at the end and, and play this great character? Uh, it was a hoot. And I, 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 loved, I loved getting to work with Bokeem. And uh, 
the the look of the character shaving my head was something that 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 I wanted to do only because I also felt that it just sort of jogged me into a different mindset very very quickly. Um, I loved what he had to say. I, I loved the whole notion of his, you know, presenting to Mike Milligan the reality that, you know, the higher up the food chain you go in a, in a, in a corporate world, oftentimes the more beholden you are to the corporate mentality. And, and you almost have less autonomy the higher your title is, you know. So we've been dissecting this show all season, digging into all the little details and everything. But you, I mean, you had the behind the scenes literal look at the show. Is there anything that people should know about Fargo that they might not just from watching it? The only thing I would say is that there are enough layers uh, to the approach and the storytelling that watching it more than once, I think, will invariably lead to new discoveries. There's a huge amount of thought that goes into the interconnectedness and the kind of subtle themes and messages running throughout. I think the big secret uh, about Fargo is that if you return to it, there's always more to there's always more to see. Great. Well, with that, we'll probably just sit down and watch it again. I think. <laughs> Thank that you. was not a sneaky way of trying to get people to rewatch <laughs> it, but, but uh, it's it's nice working on something that holds up under that kind of scrutiny. Well, thank you so much for sharing your Fargo insights with us. Uh, this thank was you. great. And uh, we're just going to go into Fargo withdrawal right now. We're going to eat some tater tot hot dish and cry to ourselves on Mondays. <laughs> for a you few months, both. anyway. Yeah. Thanks, for, uh, thanks for enjoying the show. So don't worry, there is a season three of Fargo coming, if you haven't heard that already. And Noah Hawley's been dropping a couple hints. The last I heard was that he was thinking it would be set a few years after season one. So that would put it in modern times. That'll put it right around the time of the financial crisis, really, of the end of the first decade of the 21st century. Maybe this is where Milligan will uh, come back. Right. People hoping for an old Mike Milligan. You may get what you want. You won't get an old Hanzi, however, because if he really does become Mr. Tripoli, he dies in a brutal, <laughs> brutal assault by Lorne Malvo and Fargo in season one. So we'll look forward to see what is happening next in season three. It's expected to be coming out sometime in 2016. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So we don't know exactly where in the Midwest. Uh, Holly's been picking these random little towns. We were up in Bemidji and we were down in Laverne. So I don't know where he's going to head next. Aw Jeez is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Molly Bloom. Many thanks to John Gordon and Steve Nelson. Thank you to everyone who's been listening with us all season. Thank you for sharing your theories with us on Twitter and over email. We have loved watching along with you. Uh, if you find yourself rewatching season one, tweet us the little things that we missed. We'd love to talk to you. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Okay, then. Bye now. <laughs>